Hey everyone, and welcome back to another season of Gathering Ground. I'm Mary Morton, your host and president of Morton Group, LLC, a national consulting firm based in Chicago. Earlier this summer, in a move that has to do more with politics than individual freedoms, the first conservative Supreme Court in 50 years struck down Roe v. Wade in a five to four decision eradicating a person's ability to seek out and receive a legal and safe abortion. Aside from this decision being foundationally inhumane and unjustified, it was a personal affront to me as a person whose body the majority of SCOTUS and many lawmakers since have waged war against. Part of my past work includes serving as board chair of Chicago Abortion Fund, as well as board president of Chicago Foundation for Women. And in my time in reproductive justice work, we never thought we would see Roe overturned. While we know that this decision impacts people of all identities who are able to become pregnant and give birth, Morton Group approaches our work through a lens of racial equity and an understanding that race is still the number one indicator of a person's success and access to resources like abortion. Even before Roe, the communities most impacted by a lack of access to abortions and other reproductive health care were Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Following Roe's overturning, many majority conservative states have begun passing laws criminalizing individuals seeking out, providing, or even offering information about abortion. Now, after almost half a century of access to sometimes life-saving healthcare, not much has changed. BIPOC communities continue to be institutionally marginalized by the decisions passed down by SCOTUS and Congress. This time on Gathering Ground, I sat down with three women who continue to advocate for the individuals most impacted. Marie Kahn, Director of Programs at Midwest Action Coalition. Natalie Moore, WBEZ journalist and playwright of the very successful The Billboard, a play about abortion. This play just enjoyed a very, very successful run in Chicago. An activist and co-founder of Sister Song, Loretta Ross, and I might add one of my personal heroes. We discussed how they are supporting their communities and what we can do to combat one of the most damaging rulings to personal freedoms in our lifetime. I want to start, as we often do on Gathering Ground, by asking you, how did you come to understand and work on this issue around reproductive justice and specifically about abortion? And so I'm going to start with you, Natalie. Just give us a little bit of your background. We, we like to do this at the outset of all of our episodes so that our listeners have some sense of your life. I'm here because I'm a reporter. <laughs> I've been a reporter. I'm a Chicago native. I've been at WBEZ, the NPR member station here for just celebrated 15 years this spring. And I call myself an urban affairs reporter. So it can range from housing to food access, uh, but the lens tends to be about segregation and inequality. And I, you know, as I was thinking about, I haven't told a lot of people this, but I just remembered that my very first short story, my only first, my only short story that I ever wrote in high school was about abortion. So there's something about the topic that has, I think, kept drawing me in. And I've covered um, anti-abortion billboards here in Chicago. I have covered the journey of Illinois and, and it's, a, its abortion rights. And then finally, I would say that women like Loretta Ross brought me here too. Um, there was a lot that I didn't know, so there was a lot of reading 
that I did to understand these issues in a way that um, I really didn't. Okay, thank you. Marie, can you share with us how you came to Midwest Access Coalition? Yes, I. so I was raised in the Midwest in Wisconsin in an area, in a conservative family. My dad's from overseas, my dad's from Pakistan, my mom's from Wisconsin. Um, and I wasn't raised, and it wasn't evangelical, but very conservative. And I didn't get access to sex education. Lots of lots of basic foundational things that I think we assume people now have access to that they still don't. So a lot of that shaped me growing up. And when I started working, I right after college at the University of Illinois at Chicago, I was in the space that I got exposure to actually reproductive justice from sitting in on a workshop that Loretta Ross did. And it was those little things as I was working at a university that definitely isn't perfect, but has faculty and graduate students and individuals that are committed in social justice intersectional spaces and understand this and have been doing the work, work that I hadn't been done, work that I hadn't been raised knowing. But being in that area and supporting undergraduate students as they were completing their degrees and graduate students and seeing the types of questions and concerns that students had come to me and how those included their reproductive health. Because that, that is unchanging for someone, regardless of what you're navigating in life. The hope is you're having a healthy sexual relationship, sexual experiences, and that might need that might need you be reproductive care. So this is a common thing that people are going to seek out and need. We know one in three women, one in four individuals. And we need to we need to talk about that more. And I realized that. And then Midwest Access Coalition was starting to come to be and um, fundraising in 2015 to be able to support abortion seekers that were going to be traveling that needed support. And I got pulled in with a friend as a volunteer, and I've been with the organization since then. Wonderful. Thank you. And, and Loretta, I've heard you refer to yourself as a, did you say a reluctant feminist? <laughs> well, I actually call myself an accidental feminist. Accidental, accidental feminist. Tell us about your journey to, to this work. Well, I had plans on becoming a scientist because when I first went to Howard University, I majored in chemistry and physics. But two years before I went to Howard University, a married cousin decided that he was going to have sex with me by getting me drunk. And I became pregnant. And this was back in the 1960s when abortion was not an option. So my only choice was whether to keep the child once the child was born. I had actually planned on giving my son up for adoption because at 14, that was not how I wanted to become a mother. But once he was born and those nurses at that Catholic hospital put him in my arms, I couldn't give him away because I kept saying he's got my face. But I didn't really understand what happened to me till I went to Howard University a couple of years later because I graduated at 16. And at Howard, somebody put a copy of the autobiography of Malcolm X and the Black Woman by Tony Cade in my hands. And it blew my mind because that was how I learned about feminism and the Black nationalist struggle and everything else. Because I, too, came from very conservative parents who didn't talk about any of those things at home. My parents thought that if they kept their kids not only sexually immature, but racially immature, that was the way to protect them. And of course, you can see it didn't work very well. And so 
at Howard, I entered an activist community. Uh, this was right after the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King. So the city was in constant uprisings. I got tear gassed at my first demonstration when I was 16. I also encountered a bunch of older Black women activists who helped me attach words to what I had been through because I thought that I was the only one that had been raped and incested. And I had a deep amount of shame about that. And I certainly was the only one of the few parenting first year students at Howard University. And I didn't know how to handle that. And so that led to me having an abortion at 16 in Washington, D.C. Three years later, I was sterilized by a Dalcon shield. So I had one full pregnancy, an abortion, and a sterilization. And it was the sterilization that actually got my attention because I was like, wait a moment, you're telling me I can't have any more babies kind of thing. And so fast forward a few years, I was one of the 16 women who co-founded Sister Song in 1997. But three years before then, I had co-created the theory of reproductive justice with 11 other Black women in Chicago. And so reproductive justice became the organizing framework for Sister Song, which is the reproductive justice collective in America. And so I've been a pissed off Black feminist since I was 14 years old. And now I'm almost 70 and love the fact that instead of becoming a chemist, I became a professional feminist and have dedicated my life to making sure that as few other poor black children go through what I had to go through. Well, let me just say thank you because we are all the better for your work. We are all the better for it. So thank you all very much for giving us some foundation, if you will, of how you came to this work we want to talk about what's happening now. Um, and, and before we do that, though, I want to share this quick story with you that I um, started work um, with Chicago Now um, and was working on reproductive rights because that's what we were calling them, <laughs> reproductive rights. And I was the only Black woman often in the room. And it wasn't until I saw a press conference that you, Loretta, and Billy Avery were doing in the 90s. And I literally started crying. I thought, oh my God, there are other Black women working on this issue. It was, you talk about representation matters. Um, it, it kept me going because often when I, you know, we would do clinic defense on Saturday mornings and, and try to get to the clinic before the anti-choice people got there to put glue in the locks. Um, I was doing press for a lot of that. And um, it was just, it meant so much for me to see you uh, and Billy Avery on television um, because it, it just matters. And um, I have some theories about why we continue to, uh, why we've continued to have to fight, you know, to hold on to Roe, but we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. I think I want to start with um, coming back to you, Marie, and talking about what steps or, or what, what have been the operational moves, if you will, that um, Mac has, has, embarked upon as a result of Roe v. Wade being overturned? Yes, that's, that's a very important and critical question. Um, so in terms of our, when Roe v. Wade went away, it was 
unfortunately a wake up call for a lot of people who have been silent, but also there have been plenty of people within our communities that we know have not like Roe v. Wade has meant next to nothing for them. Actually, if there aren't, you're not in a space that has abortion providers, which a lot of the Midwest is like people are, our communities are already operating from spaces where they weren't having access to care. And, um, but so what we're seeing now as a result and a consequence of Roe is not only those folks that we have here in the Midwest having to travel farther, but folks from other regions, other hostile states, I say hostile state because that's how they're being treated by their government and their elected officials. This is not an indictment on that state. There should It's a disgusting argument to say, no, you should, you should leave your state if you don't like it. No, states should be, it, it spaces should be looking after their communities and people. Um, but what we're seeing, though, is more folks are having to come to the Midwest in addition to our folks having to travel farther. So there's been ways that we pivoted to try to address that and be there for those communities that we want to continue to be able to meet at the point and the level they're at. Lots of the folks we work with are underbanked or non-banked. So that means telling someone, oh, no, here, well, well, PayPal you this. And that's the only way you can get this funds is is not an option for lots of folks. So we've worked on getting more concrete agreements and relationships and um, partnerships set up with different funds, doula communities, nonprofits that are within the Midwest, and also mutual aid groups that are that are not on those books, on not on the books in those ways. Because we're seeing, unfortunately, especially in Texas, what a lot of this, what a lot of what the legislation does, it attacks the communities that are at stake, the mutual aid spaces, the reproductive justice collectives that exist. We're telling people, hey, you're not allowed to gather. You're not allowed to volunteer. You're not allowed to pass along resources and knowledge to your communities. And if you do it, we're going to call it aiding and abetting. So what we're seeing is the need to only strengthen those ties with those individuals in our communities that are already doing the work. Um, we're seeing, um, and it, along those lines, we've um, at MAC in particular, we have emergency contraception and we bolstered how that's put forward. So we have an online form now for folks to request it so we can mail it to them. We got it packaged up in kits real quick. And if you need it, you can request it and ask for it. Um, and since Roe fell, we also partnered with RepoCare who have put forward an online uh, site, online abortionhotline.org that gets folks set up with actual instructions how to self-manage safely. Cause we're not in an era where people need to be looking towards coat hangers or any other types of imagery that's gone. We need people to have access to abortion pills. And in this current climate where we're forced to make people move and travel, even though everything we want is that we don't want people to have to travel. We want people to get to stay as close to home as possible to have a medication abortion, a surgical abortion, to get care at home, to, to be working with a doula, to get hospital-based care if that's their requirement, everything that they need. But we know some folks can't do that. So having... Um, with ReproCare, abortionhotline.org, it's a it's a source of information and instructions and actually a site that people can go to to access pills because pills are still safe, even if they are not legal in all parts of the US. Um, and then we've been working with another, um, an entity that was forming into a nonprofit as, as Roe officially went down, Elevated Access, as a resource to get um, rides to looking at spaces that... Um, People are really, really hard pressed to get out of to access an airport or to access a place to rent a car or a bus station, but that, that individual is still pregnant and they still need to get somewhere. So we've seen the need for a lot more partnerships and more kind of thinking that shouldn't have to occur. We shouldn't okay. be planning how to fly someone out of the Rio Grande Valley because they have an appointment in Minnesota. And they have to get to that appointment, or if not for that, then they're going to need to look at going to D.C. or Albuquerque or Colorado. And then after it, you won't you won't have an option. You, your, your autonomy just ticks down so slowly. 
over those weeks of pregnancy that that people can maybe try to access abortion care at. Okay, great. That's that's very helpful. That gives us a, a an overview of, of what's changed in a very tactical sense. And I want to come to you, Natalie, and and talk to you um, a little bit about the play that you've written, and um, because it's about abortion, it's about a billboard. Tell us a little bit about um, how you came to write this play and why and, and why you thought it was important to do so. And, and you were doing all this way before we had any sense that Roe v. Wade was gonna be overturned. Yes, I started writing this play in 2018 and I actually was in the process of writing another play, but I was taking a class at Chicago Dramatists and had a homework assignment to write a four play four page scene about an object. And this was shortly after everything in Dallas happened. So in Dallas, there was a black man who's pro-life and funded by white evangelicals. And I'm using the terms pro-life and pro-choice to signify um, those movements language. And that and this person had put up an anti-abortion billboard in Chicago um, early in, in 2011. So this billboard, um, you know, uh, forgot the exact language, but it was basically demonizing black women for having abortions. But there was the Athea Center, a black women's group that put up its own billboard that said along the lines, I mean, the, the, the biggest takeaway was that abortion is self-care. And it had a picture of three black women smiling. And uh, this is before I started my journey of reading about reproductive justice. That billboard made me uncomfortable. And uh, I didn't understand why. And I thought, well, this would be something good to write about because art's supposed to make you uncomfortable. So I called a friend of mine who's a midwife and abortion provider at Choices in Memphis. And I was like, okay, tell me why I feel a certain kind of way about this billboard. <laughs> and she said, well, you're not the only one. And you know, she clued me in into some of the debate that, that had been happening and that she knew that it was gonna be, and I mean, the reaction was horrible. Now, I may have felt a certain kind of way, but I wasn't going on social media. Like I wasn't, I was just processing this myself. But the vitriol that the self-care billboard received also seemed out of line. So, but it, it seemed to be alienating people who would have identified as pro-choice. And so I had a this wonderful talk with this friend who was part of my kitchen cabinet throughout this whole writing process. Um, and that's when I read your work, Loretta, um, other work, and just really got up to speed. And that four page scene is not directly, it's, it's been rewritten, but the scene was between the head, a doctor, an OBGYN, who's an abortion provider in a clinic in Inglewood on Chicago's South Side, who wants to put up the self-care billboard. And a black woman who is her board chair, who's like, eh, I don't know about this. And that's, that's the debate. So I sent that scene, to, the, the, the homework assignment got great feedback from my classmates, from the teacher. I sent it to the artistic director of the theater I was working with on the other play. And she said, I don't wanna tell you, I sent it to her like, hey, you know, I kind of know what I'm doing here on this playwriting thing. This is a new genre for me. 
And she said, I don't want to tell you what to do, but I think this is your play. And I decided that that was good advice to take since that was the theater I was working with. And because the play, it's not a historical reenactment. I don't know anything about Dallas. Chicago was my muse. And to up the stakes and drama, I decided to set it in a city council race. So there's a black man, a quasi black nationalist who puts up an abortionist genocide. Billboard, keep Inglewood black, vote Demetrius Jew for city council and a fictitious black women's health clinic that puts up its own self-care billboard. And that's the heart of the play, these dueling billboards. But I will also say um, the play is about abortion, but it's also not about abortion. The play is about body autonomy. It's about personhood and autonomy and who gets to speak for community. Because no one, there are abortion stories that are talked about. Uh, but when people hear a play about abortion, I think that they believe they're going to see a play or read a play about someone grappling to have an abortion. And nobody has an abortion in real time in the play. Exactly. I, I had a chance to see it over the summer, really enjoyed it. And um, I, I thought there was a very positive reaction, certainly that evening that I was there. Has that been what you saw throughout the run of the play? Yes. And I, I have to say, you know, um, security came up. I wondered we, about that. As, I wondered about as that. As we were um, planning this and after... I think the I don't think Roe had been overturned yet. Well, first of all, I told the whole theater. Now, 2018, I didn't think Roe was going to be overturned. In January, after we set our dates, I said Roe's going to be overturned when this play comes out. I don't think they believe me, not because they think I'm a liar, but I'm just so attuned into what is what's been happening. And the Supreme Court, when they took up Dobbs v. Jackson and knowing who was on the court, I was like, they're going to overturn it. And I think they're like, okay, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and mm -hmm. then when Alito happened, like we started having conversations that felt really ripped out the play because security is an issue. And the women from the Afia Center came to see the play, which was amazing. And we did a talk back and it was wonderful to sit next to them because they were nodding and giving feedback. And then it was very emotional discussion, the director was crying. Um, they also said, how did you capture this? How did you, were you listening to our conversations? But it was also triggering because they had, the executive director had to get security and the worst responses, the most threats that she got were from black men. So watching this character was, um, a little triggering. So when we were having this discussions about, because at first the theater said, let's not do any talkbacks. And I was like, that's not happening. I mean, I'm a reporter. Um, this is what we do, public engagement. I, you know, not to, to be naive, but I thought if someone's really against this play, I don't know if they're going to buy tickets to come see it. Maybe. But in short, the feedback was, positive. So I think people who were, I, I don't believe that we had any, I should just say we didn't have any incidents that that happened or any, you know, booing or um, 
you know, in anything like, like that. It was a regular theater going experience, but we, you know, we did have these conversations. The play was on Northwestern's downtown campus. Northwestern does have security. So that was something we, we knew and we were in, in contact. Um, well, the theater was, uh, you know, management wasn't, was in contact with them, but, um, Overall, I would say it was well-received and that it gave people something to, you know, I, my framework as a journalist never goes away. We don't tell you what to think, we tell you what to think about. And I think that the, the play gave people something to, to think about. All right, great. We're gonna come back to um, the play in just a moment, but I wanted to ask you, Loretta, why do you think we're here? at this moment in time uh, with regard to Roe v. Wade? I believe we're here because of the backlash to the success of the civil rights movement. After the passing of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, the Republican Party decided that they could not run on an outright segregationist platform because of the failure of the George Wallace and the Barry Goldwater campaigns. And, but they found that they could run on an anti-abortion platform because they could disguise it as hyper-Christianity. And by that way, meld together white evangelical voters with their business interests who wanted total corporate deregulation with the states' rights people who were still upset over desegregation, with the people who were opposed to lesbian and gay rights, so the homophobic and transphobic crowd, and with the people who were hostile to immigrants. So they ended up with an unholy alliance of people who, for their own reasons and on their own issues, were opposed to the concept of human rights whether it was for black people, queer people, immigrants, women, it didn't matter. The people whose only currency is hatred and lies. And that's what they have used since the 1960s as their chief ability to try to gain and hold on to electoral power. Now, I need to fast forward from Richard Nixon, who was the first person to roll out the Southern strategy, where you can't say the N-word, but you can say, you know, that we support, pro, that we're pro-life or those kinds of things. Even, but let's be clear, the Republicans before this unholy coalition came together were almost uniformly pro-choice. I mean, George Bush's father was on the board of Planned Parenthood. Richard Nixon, through the Office of Economic Opportunity, funded the first family planning clinics. So when family planning was pitched as a way to control the growth of Black and Latino populations, the Republicans supported it. But when white women started going to the family planning clinics, that's when they switched gears and decided to oppose it. So I'm still convinced that if they could find a way to restrict abortion access to only women of color and LGBT folks, they would send limousines to take us to the clinics. Uh, 
It would be totally available, free, accessible, and free transportation would be provided. But the attacks on abortion rights aren't really about limiting the reproduction of people of color, even though they like that. That we're collateral damage. It is about controlling the wombs of white women because they believe, of course, in this white replacement theory BS that Tucker Carlson and others are running, their fear of being overwhelmed by people of color, by immigrants, by Muslims, et cetera, et cetera. You hear it every day on Fox News. But the problem that they had was that Donald Trump bought what they were whispering in dog whistles into public discourse. He became the avatar of white supremacy in an electoral guise. What David Duke wanted, Donald Trump did. And when you saw how quickly David Duke, the Klansman, jumped on the Donald Trump bandwagon and how a majority of his support is still from people who are either white supremacists or even at the kindest thing I can say about them is that they're racially challenged. But still, this is where we are right now. We're facing right now not only an anti-modern movement, as if we should all be back there in the 19th century under Jim Crow laws and under 1800 anti-abortion laws, but we're also facing an anti-democratic movement because the Republican Party has basically decided that if they are going to be forced to share democracy with people who are not white, then they'd rather destroy it. And this is what we are looking at. And so in the destruction of democracy, you need to take away women's rights. Matter of fact, one of the things I'm afraid of is that they may get enough states to agree to a constitutional convention because it only takes 34 of the 50 states to do that. And if they do that, they're going to reopen the Constitution, eliminate the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, eliminate the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote. I mean, they're going to eliminate probably the First Amendment and the separation of church and state. They're going to roll us back to a white apartheid-like state because this is what they frankly need in order to permanently hold on to power. Now, of course, it's not going to be easy because the problem with their strategy is that they have to lie to people. They cannot tell the truth about what they want to do. And so, nor can they persuade enough white women to throw away their birth control to have babies for the white revolution. <laughs> so they're having to do a number of things. They're going to expand the definition of who's counted as white. They're going to remove citizenship from people like recent immigrants and stuff, remove birthright citizenship from people so that they lose their voting rights. Of course, use voting suppression so that non-white people votes aren't counted. And of course, if they're allowed to remove the 13th, 14th, 15th amendments, then they can also strip black people, brown people, Asian people, and of course, indigenous people of their citizenship rights as well. So they have a multiplicity of strategies that they are employing. And I'll say in closing, the thing that most frustrates me is that the white women that are pro-choice, they understand the threat partially. 
but they don't take a racial analysis around what's going on. They're only taking a gender analysis as if the threat to all women is the same. The threat mm -hmm. to all pregnant people is the same. And that's absolutely not true. And so I think they should be in the leadership of denouncing the white replacement theory. They need to be in the leadership of calling out the white supremacists in their families, in their communities, in their churches, in their schools, because that's the only way that they're going to have their human rights protected. But if they are still falling prey to their own internalized white supremacy, then they'll fail not only to protect abortion rights, but human rights for all of us. Well, that was uh, an extraordinary um, overview of where we've been and where we are now. Uh, thank you so much. And really what you said, most people don't have any sense of, right? They don't really understand that's what's happening at the, at the core. So I'm curious, uh, certainly from uh, where Marie and Natalie sit, did you think that, um, certainly Natalie, as you were writing the play and talking to people and doing your research, that any of this, any anything that Loretta has just said came into your research? Was it lifted up in some way? Absolutely. You know, the fears of white women not having enough babies goes back to the first abortion laws that states had in the 1800s and understanding the linkage between misogyny and racism and white supremacy and slavery. Um, it's very wrapped up in each other. Um, I think what really became clear for me in, in the readings and understanding is having to, and just understanding my own upbringing and how abortion, uh, upbringing as, as society and I came of age in the 90s where the tagline was keep abortion safe, legal and rare. And, you know, we just have different language now and different lenses. And I, I, I don't think the intention was to be marginalizing, but there's always been some sort of shame that's with abortion, something that's whispered. And so when I had a reaction of why is this self-care billboard and women laughing on the billboard. You know, I look at it now, I was just like, oh my gosh, why did I even think it was a big deal? But I had to undo how abortion has been treated in society. And there's a stigma, even if you're pro-choice, even if you believe in abortion rights. So those were the, those were the things that I was thinking about also like, okay, well, this is how abortion was talked about very hushed. Um, and, I, and I don't think that you have to shout your abortion. I think it's great that there are spoken words and books that do that, and it should be however you want to, to do it. Um, but what I also learned through all of this is the difference between choice and access, and just how a Black feminist lens changes everything. Um, no matter what the subject, <laughs> it could be housed, like just this, the, the, the much more holistic look and the inclusiveness that comes along with it. And so, you know, when we heard things like 
abortion is something between a woman and her doctor. No, that's not inherently wrong because you are talking to your doctor about it, but it misses all these other issues that come into play about, well, who has a doctor? Who, you know, again, at, at access. And I think that those conversations are being amplified much more now. And I think that also the abortion rights community is messaging and imagery and symbolism is important, whether you're for abortion or against it. And I think now abortion rights is starting to see that with their own billboards, their own, I mean, all the swag that's out now. Um, like, can we curse on your podcast, Mary? Absolutely. So, you know, the, the, <laughs> the tote bags that say, fuck your abortion ban, like that's mm-hmm. not something you would have seen no. even 10 years ago, right. maybe even five years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, that, that, that's absolutely the case. And what it sounds like you're referencing what we already know, right, in terms of the social determinants of health, right, where people live, work, and play and intersectionality, that these topics are not just standing by, these issues are not standing by themselves. And, and Marie, one of the things I'm curious about for the work that Mac is doing, what, if anything, and this is, I'm just, do you talk to, are you, you very much working on getting women uh, and others, right, trans folks and, and um, non-binary folks, are you working on getting folks the access to the services that they need and that's really your focus, or are you doing other pieces around advocacy or general education as well? We, our primary focus is getting folks doing the wraparound transportation, lodging for them while they're getting their abortion, and also um, food funding and childcare funding. So those are the pillars that, like, it would it would be great if we had the funds for wage replacement for the days that people are having to take off of work because like like was mentioned here people don't have you don't have regular doctors folks don't have regular health insurance so all these things that people are undertaking and doing um, are things that during their regular day to day they may not necessarily be engaged with anyway and now they're doing it in order to access abortion care and um. So along those lines, um, we will work to see, sometimes folks let us know about other types of resources and we'll try to connect them with a, an option for that. Like for instance, an area that um, talking about the, the evangelical religious right, fake clinics, crisis pregnancy centers. Like those are places that are specifically out there to prey on black and brown folks. Communities that they're like, all right, these are folks we're gonna go after and we're going to try to through um, stereotyping through arguments rooted in racism and the immediate assumption of people's inabilities to care for their own families and parent their own communities. They will be there and they will offer up um, options for people to receive funding for diapers, to receive funding for other types of important critical items that folks need to continue to parent, to support the families they're in, or people that are on their own that are looking to get to a place to get shelter, get housing. All of these are communities that anti-abortion entities look at and go after. And we know that is rooted in white supremacy and the harm that white supremacy allows to occur from those people that are, that don't see the racism in it, but don't realize, oh, if the byproduct of an action on a community is that a specific group of people don't get access to something, that, and it is based on their race, their class, their gender, their sexual identity, all of that's wrong. All of that is incorrect. It's a violation of human rights. And so we see folks, in addition to what they need to access their abortion care, folks that are letting us know, 
contexts of domestic violence, um, living at a in a sh uh, shelter and unhoused space, individuals that need diaper support or other types of support for their little ones. So those people that are coming to get abortions are not operating in this single monolith. They're not operating in a bubble. They're folks coming from all different spaces and places. And it's and for those folks who are white, who are privileged, who have the ability to access things, the experience that other communities have is very, very different. And one of the things that um, I especially appreciated being mentioned was the, how the, the intersectionality of this white supremacy, misogyny, and racism that we are especially seeing coalesce right now, being with people going, I mean, folk, folks don't want, you know, they want loving to be reversed right now. They want, and they're looking, you know, that that's as far back as they're looking, if not farther. And they're like, have their eyes on gay marriage. They have all these types of, of what we want to create these welcoming, safe environment for folks, but we know that doesn't exist. And those same types of people are outside of abortion clinics. So you have those same types of folks out there regularly exercising white supremacy and misogyny on the day outside of clinics that that pregnant person is encountering. And part of as we're working with them, we're seeing them going through all these processes and we are seeing where, like we are literally seeing where reproductive justice is coming end to end with those white supremacist actors in the street where we want this person to have the rights and the access to do all the things they want to do. And we want to meet them on their terms, not make them download extra apps and figure out how to get and travel farther than they need to. And all of that is being countered by, by folks in elected office, by folks at lower levels that are choosing and making deliberate decisions rooted in politics, rooted in white supremacy and misogyny to do this to us. And in the communities that especially need access to that abortion care are the same ones that aren't getting access to so many other types of resources and supports that should be there. We're going to take a break. Um, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, I want to talk about um, what are we going to do moving forward? How do we get younger folks involved, people who grew up with just taking Roe v. Wade for granted in some cases? And what are the next, the next moves that we need to make as a, as a pro-choice uh, community um, to make sure that those who are most at risk have some kind of uh, safety net. And we'll be right back. You're listening to Gathering Ground. We're back in a moment. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me on Gathering Ground. We want to hear from you. If you have any questions about your work in nonprofits or any of the topics that we've covered here on Gathering Ground, send them on in. Send them to mary at gatheringgroundpodcast.com. That's mary at gatheringgroundpodcast, all one word, dot com. We look forward to hearing from you. Let's continue with what you were saying, um, Loretta, about racializing the, um, the, the issue around abortion. Well, I probably bring a heretical view towards the racial politics within the abortion rights movement because I've been involved for so long. So when I first got into the movement, I really did think that their chief weakness was the lack of diversity their lack of inclusion of the voices of women of color. But I realized uh, within a few years that the problem was even deeper, 
They didn't even know how to attract poor white women. Poor Norma McCorvey, the original Jane, you know, wrote. She was a poor white woman with a speckled resume who was used to decriminalize abortion, but the movement had no strategy for bringing her in, including her in, which is speaks to why the Republican Party has made so much headway with white women who themselves are having abortion, but won't politically speak up for abortion, at least recently until Kansas, which is a whole nother thing. So what I began to understand is that it was futile to expect white women to understand the realities of women of color when they didn't even understand the realities of white women because of their lack of a racial analysis around reproductive politics. And so my project has been to really understand and deepen my own analysis around racial politics, uh, particularly uh, uh, Natalie was talking about the billboards. The first billboards appeared in Atlanta in 2011, I believe. And uh, the most dangerous place for a black baby is in the womb. And the person who put them together was a mixed race, half black, half white guy named Ryan Bomberger, who has started the Radiance Foundation. And so we had to fight the billboards because the billboards were accompanied by racialized anti-abortion language where they were literally using the bodies of black women to say that we were committing self-genocide, that we were being duped by pro abortion providers into murdering our own children, but their whole strategy fell apart because they could never find a black woman who was choosing an abortion because she was surprised that her child was going to be black. I mean, so that whole strategy was crazy. And so we defeated the billboards, we defeated the legislation, but that required the white-led pro-choice movement to step back while black women and Asian American women who were also caught up in that because they were accused of having abortions because of the gender of the child stepped up. And from 2010, 2011, 2012 is where you later, Natalie, saw the billboard six years later as they had continued to circulate around the country. But the purpose of those billboards is not actually to persuade Black women not to have abortions. Like I said, Black women are not having abortions because we don't know what race our child is going to be or that we don't want the Black race to grow. Those are racially mesh, uh, racialized messages to make white people feel that if they support abortion, they are racist. So it was messaging targeting white communities using the bodies of black people. It was not about trying to increase the number of black, brown, indigenous, or, or, or Latina babies being born. So that's why we have to take a deeper and much more nuanced and sophisticated analysis when we look at these apparent efforts to when they get mealy mouthed about caring about brown and black babies through the crisis pregnancy centers and all of that. It is all bullshit. 
because these are the same people who vote against everything children need once they're here because they read any kind of social welfare program as benefiting black, brown children. And so that's why they oppose public education, school lunches, want cops you know, to be in every school, the school to prison pipeline. And so we can't, ever, we can't ever take them at face value. They don't care about black children. If they cared about black children, they wouldn't be so unalterably opposed to everything that could help black women survive and black children survive and thrive. So keeping this in mind, um, and certainly from the work we do at Morton Group, which a lot of is around racial equity, access, diversity, and inclusion, and knowing that uh, certainly younger folks tend to have less, um, uh, you know, some less concerns around race or aren't participating in it the same way they may have seen from um, earlier generations. How do we communicate what you've just said, Loretta, to younger folks so that they understand really what's at stake here? Because I, I guess I feel that we have to figure out a way to encourage and get younger folks involved. And I, I feel if, as if they knew really what was at the crux of this debate, they would, they would understand why they have to get involved. Yes, no. Well, I would say one thing and then I'll pass it on. We all remember the January 6th insurrection against the Capitol. Yes. What people don't realize is that about a third of the people caught up in that came directly from the anti-abortion movement. Mm -hmm. But they were united to overthrow democracy, not because white votes weren't counted, but because black votes were. were. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's right. And so if you don't understand how that assault on the Capitol represented the anti-immigrant, the anti-gay, the anti-woman, the anti-black, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. the anti-democratic forces coming together in an armed insurrection against the government, you really don't understand how fascism works and how anti-democratic practices work. And so I'm really concern that if you don't have that intersectional 360 degree analysis that can connect the dots, then you may think that working on only one issue is sufficient when in fact you have to work on all the issues or at least make sure that the work you do on your issue isn't done in a way that creates contradictions for the rest of the movement. So you can't do work for trans rights in a misogynistic way. Exactly. You can't do work for civil rights in a homophobic way. You can't do work for women's rights in a racist way. Mm -hmm. Those mm -hmm. things are important. Mm -hmm. I think that is a, a really hard lesson that the queer community had to learn around marriage equality. Um, you can't expect people to show up for you if you're not showing up for them and you're not going to pass marriage equality without having a multiracial coalition, for sure. Um, Marie, what do you think um, is one of the ways or some of the ways that we can get younger folks on, on board to understand what's at stake and, and why folks need to really rally together around um, creating some safer uh, opportunities and, and circumstances for, for people to have abortion? I think meeting young people where they're at 
looking at in existing stage, there's coalitions for, for young people in various communities and bodies. And for example, in Illinois, we have a coalition that helped inform and work with state legislatures to take down the requirement that Illinois had, which was parental notification for abortion care. And that is something like young people are, are continually the, the population in this country often that, you know, you're, we're, we're shaping and giving them what they have to deal with, but they're unable to vote. They're unable to, act, to access so many things to do all the things to actually set up their future for themselves, how they want it. And we need to do whatever we can to elevate them and put the tools in their hands, whether it's um, getting emergency contraception onto campuses, um, high schools, colleges, whether it's working with um, local municipal funding in cities, how certain community organizations have been doing, especially down in Texas, to get um, municipal funding available for reproductive care, menstrual products, whether it's bringing other resources in areas and spaces, and those aren't abortion necessarily related, but they are a great step in getting young people to feel empowered and know, hey, it's okay for me to bring up this topic. It's okay for me to challenge and require a conversation of this. It shouldn't be on young people to show up to their school board and ask, why on earth do we have these dress codes, these hair, these hair mandates that are straight up racist? Why on earth do all those exist when the adults in the room aren't doing things? But we need to realize, I think, and and know the importance of centering young people because they are the ones that are going to take that information back to their communities. What we're doing, unfortunately, is having to educate people and also work to, to deconstruct some of, the, some of the competing viewpoints that people are coming to us with. That might be that, oh, trans people don't need abortion care and unpacking that and explaining, no, why anyone capable of having a child needs to be able to access certain types of care that comes from including young people in conversations and letting them actually take up space at the table and be there and making sure we're not treating young people like monoliths either. We're acknowledging those that are working, that are already parenting. Like we, we can't we can't say, oh, VH1 16 and pregnant is fine for some people and then turn around and ignore the populations that are living it and doing it and are doing it really well or are asking for assistance because they're not. Like we need to be there for all of them in all those capacities and not not have those fake clinics there waiting to put their racial, racialized, misogynistic stereotypes on these young people and pull them in farther. We need to make sure folks are equipped with the tools and the knowledge to make their own educated decision and show by example that, hey, we trust pregnant people. We don't we don't expect you to have everything lined up, but we know you're working as best as you can right now on what you're trying to accomplish. And we're here there. We're here for you on that. And young people need to see that exercised in front of them. And in keeping with that, because again, you talk about the intersectionality, right, of, of, mm -hmm. of this issue. Natalie, what did you see from younger folks in terms of their reactions to the, to the play? Um, did it give you any sense of, of their own commitment or activism around the issue? I think that we have seen such a sea change in this country the day before the Alito leak and the day after the leak. Only people really doing this work talking about abortion. And now it is on the news. It's part of, there's a lot more currency to it. Um, when I, I did an event in DC with Fatima Goss Graves when the billboard came out as a, as a book. This is before the leak, it was in April. And some of the people were saying, well, why is this you know, hard to organize around? And she said, it's hard to 
organize people around rights that they think they already have. So I don't know where the failure belongs on, you know, why people don't know. I mean, I, I feel like even some of my friends who are tuned into Black fem feminism were like, oh, I didn't know what reproductive justice meant. Um, so I think that there's just been this deep, steep learning curve that's been happening since the spring. Um, and I'll just say, even in my family, I'll just give a few anecdotes. My six-year-old keep <laughs> sheet was like, um, you're talking about abortion a lot. What's that? And I just was not really prepared to have that conversation with a six-year-old. And then I was like, okay, well, maybe this is my stigma coming across. Why don't I just tell her? And when I told her, she said, okay. And then she just moved along. And then she asked me later, what does Roe mean? And I said, well, the Supreme Court doesn't want you to have decisions over your body. She's like, that's terrible. And then my stepdaughters were asking me, is this gonna affect birth control? Well, what exactly is, what, what's under birth control? So I think the questions and the conversations are happening and in a, which looks like a very gross display of nepotism. Mary saw this. My youngest stepdaughter was in the play as the 19 year old program assistant in the billboard who runs social media. I did not cast her, um, but I will say that I've been looking at her Instagram stories and she's posting about abortion. And before the play, she was not. Okay, all right. That's, That's awesome. <laughs> yes, that is very positive movement forward. Um, we just have a, a little bit of time left and I, I wanted to ask you um, all, if you think that, um, there is a, a momentum building, uh, as you said, Natalie, certainly we're having the conversations more often. And that was something that always struck me, um, you know, in the 90s doing this work is that anti-choice people will talk about being anti-choice anywhere at any time. <laughs> they don't care. They will bring it up. You could be standing in the line at Starbucks. I mean, and, and we don't do that, right? Um, is that changing? Uh, it sounds like it, it is with younger folks. I think even... Older, if I could just tell one more anecdote from the play. Um, on closing, a friend of mine who I've known since high school came and she brought her mother and we were celebrating at the W afterwards closing. And her mother told me, she was like, you know, I had an abortion when I was dating her father because, you know, and she just told me. And I think it was, now I've known her since I was like 14 years old, never knew this. Um, and my, my friend knew it. Um, and she also said how the father wasn't happy. And she's like, I probably shouldn't have told him. <laughs> um, but that was, I don't think in another environment, she would have brought that up. And I think that it is giving license to talk more. I think that it's going to take many years, maybe a generation to um, I have a line in the play where the, the doctor who put up the billboard said, you know, maybe in 50 years talking about abortion will be as common as talking about potholes in the winter. And we're not there yet, but I think we are seeing, because of the devastation that we've seen, there's more thoughtfulness in how to move forward and how things have to be done differently. And 
the conversations and the framework that the people on this podcast have had are going to, I think, go into the mainstream more. Okay. And Loretta, am I correct in, in thinking that when reproductive, reproductive justice, that term um, came about, it was really because I think I was hearing the message that we can't talk about abortion the same way um, in people of color communities, particularly in the black community, as it is in the white community. Was that part of the thinking around the reproductive justice term and those pillars that you laid out at the outset? Actually, it was not. I okay. know people are surprised. Okay. If we had centered the problems with white women, that would have been a different conversation because it would have been about challenging the pro-choice framing. We created reproductive justice because we put Black women in the center of the lens. And we talked about what Black women needed. And we needed the right to raise our children. We needed the right to have our pregnancy options respected. We needed sex education. We needed uh, uh, the right to have abortions and stuff like that. So a lot of people mistakenly think, think that Black women created reproductive justice as a counter to white women. No, it was an affirmation of our blackness and our femaleness that created reproductive justice. Now it does usefully challenge the narrow focus on abortion that the white women have, but we didn't create it because of them. We created it because of what we wanted from the framework. And that is very important. And then there's a a couple of other myths around reproductive justice one of which is because it was created by Black women, it should only be used and applied by Black women. Of course, that's a racist interpretation because that basically says that Black women can't create universal theory for humanity, which is ridiculous. I mean, think about intersectionality and all the other things Mm -hmm. that we have done. Uh, And so we don't like that. And a lot of people think, you know, reproductive justice is just a new buzzword to use to attach to their old politics when we say no because we've attached criteria to it if you're not talking about human rights if you're not connecting uh what's happening locally with what's happening globally if you're not centering the most vulnerable people in the lens of what's going on then it's not reproductive justice whatever you're trying to use it because now all the foundations want to fund reproductive justice. If you want to do the same old, same old, and yet just use it as a buzzword, we offer a critique of that as well. And so I'm really proud of what we've done with reproductive justice because we've shifted the paradigm. We've shifted the framework. It is the best counter to white supremacy and neo-fascism. Because if you're not challenging neo-fascism, white supremacy and neoliberal capitalism, it also ain't reproductive justice. And so we're very clear that this alignment that we're creating, you know, between economic justice, reproductive justice, food justice, housing justice, climate justice, we are creating an alignment that is transforming the universe. And I'll say in closing, because you were talking about moving forward momentum, I think the people who are fighting us mistakenly think that they are fighting us, but they're actually fighting forces that are much bigger than us because they're fighting history. They're fighting the truth. They're fighting evidence. 
And most importantly, they're fighting time. And these white boys can't defeat truth, evidence, history, and time. I mean, they can't just automatically wave their fingers and throw us back into the 19th century and make us forget all the knowledge that we have. So my biggest fear right now is that we have a winning hand because truth, evidence, history, and time are on our side, but we are at risk of self-destructing on the way to victory with our call-out culture because we're busy criticizing and self-destructing from within instead of keeping ourselves laser focused on the opponents and stuff. So, but that's the way we're gonna keep momentum, recognize that we've got a winning hand and we have to make sure that we don't snatch defeat from the jaws of victory because we're gonna win. I love that. And that is, that is really what we want to to end on. I just, I, I think that is a, the perfect ending. I just want to make sure, Marie, if there's anything that we should know quickly about uh, ways to support MAC, can you, can you tell us that? And we'll put things on our website as well. We'll put some information on our website. Folks can visit MidwestAccessCoalition.org. Um, yeah. And look, look towards, we, we are, so we support folks traveling to, from, and within the Midwest for practical support. And there's other regional orgs in different parts of the U.S., but it's an area like abortion funding. If you don't have the money to make sure your babysitting's okay, someone's not going to leave their kid. Like as much as we want to vilify people having abortions, no, these are critical things folks need. And what it means is you're forcing them to parent in a context that they're, that they are doing everything they can to prevent and have their own choice in the matter and continue to exist pregnant, parenting their existing families. So it's, yeah, we're, we're glad for people to acknowledge and look at that and realize with people having to travel more, just this, this horror, like what, what Roe is doing to so many people and who it's already neglected in the past. It's just, it's so much that, that folks are having to, to tackle right now to get basic abortion care, basic pill-based abortion care. Mm -hmm. So midwestaccesscoalition.org. Thank you. Wonderful. And Natalie, what's next for the play? Where, where can someone see it if they didn't have the opportunity while I was here in Chicago? Well, I'm pleased to say that I just found out that the billboard received a Jeff nomination, which is like nice. the local Tony yes. Awards here in Congratulations. Chicago. Thank you for best new work. And the, the run is over in Chicago, but if any other theater wants to pick it up around the country, that would be terrific. Uh, but in the meantime, it is published as a book and there's some extra content in there, um, like the Q&A with, with Tony Bond, an introduction, a forward from Imani Perry, uh, words from Jane Sachs. And you can buy that at your favorite, wherever you buy books, preferably an independent bookstore. Yes, and we'll just, there's, there's several here in Chicago. Uh, so please visit them and across the country as folks are listening to this. Um, go to an independent bookstore, ideally, <laughs> to get a copy. And um, in closing, I just want to say that we're going to add all of this information about what you all are working on to our website. Is there anything that you would like to direct folks to, Loretta, in terms of your work? I know you're, you're at Smith College as well. Um, you're always speaking somewhere, doing many things. Anything else we should know about wh where we can find you and hear you? Well, I'm teaching courses on calling in how yes. we can turn the call out culture into a calling in culture. And they can go to my website, lorettajross.com and sign up 
for our upcoming class. It's only $5 a lecture, the cost of a cup of coffee, where we can actually make sure that we build a strong and united human rights movement to beat back the forces of fascism. So Wonderful. I'm very proud to offer for $5 what the kids at Smith are paying $76,000 to get. <laughs> <laughs> you cannot beat that. Thank you all so very much for this conversation. We could talk for so much longer, um, but this has really been uh, very important to me, uh, work that, as I said, I've been involved with for many years. And Natalie, I was thinking too, do we have to do this again? But apparently we are gonna have to do it again. Uh, but thank you all again, Marie Kahn, Natalie Moore, and Loretta Ross. I'm Mary Morton. Until next time. Mm -hmm.